it's been eating me alive. Started, and I told you this, with my debate with Shane Claiborne at Malone University in Ohio. He's got dreadlocks down to his navel and has the wackiest views I've ever heard. He dresses funny and he loves Jesus with all of his heart. And I love Shane more than I can possibly tell you. I read from 1 Corinthians and this is where Paul says in the 10th verse of the first chapter, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. As I said, I've been living with it and eating it and studying it and meditating on it for so very long. The last time I was here, we looked at Philippians 2, and the question is, why can't we get along without losing our convictions? If you were there and you were listening and you never listened to me, we, uh, we saw that if we're going to get along without losing our convictions, it starts in the mind, and it's the mind of Christ. And then it moves into our heart, and then it moves into the place of actions where we say, if your heart is as my heart, give me your hand. And then all of that is empowered by the Spirit of Jesus. But this morning we're going to talk about why we can't agree, or why can't we agree without losing our convictions. I'm a Republican, okay. I've been a Republican all my life. I've never, not even once, voted for a Democrat, and that's cool. But my family, all of them, are Democrats. My mother was a poll judge, and my earliest memories are my mother getting up to stand for her party, the Democratic Party, and to make sure that Republicans didn't cheat. My brother, my late brother, my best friend, was the district attorney, and I ran his media campaign. He won by landslide against an incumbent took every precinct in the 28th Congressional District. And frankly, he would be the Democratic governor of North Carolina if he had lived. I used to go to those rallies. I'd sit in the back and I'd want to stand up and say, there are two things you ought to know about me. First, I'm a Republican and I think you're crazy. And secondly, that's my brother. And doesn't he shine? I can remember my father at the dinner table laughing and saying, once I was a Democrat, as happy as can be, now I'm a Republican and I wish Truman were tree. <laughs> Everybody laughed because we knew that if the devil ran on the Democratic ticket, my father would vote Democratic. So I'm a Republican and they're Democrats. I love my family. I love my father more than I can tell you. He taught me about unconditional love. My mother was mean as a snake. 
and the most significant person in my life, outside my wife. My brother, the greatest tragedy. I loved them. But they were Democrats, and that made for an interesting Thanksgiving. You had to be very careful. Now, that's the issue we're going to be dealing with this morning. Not Democrats and Republicans, but Christians. And interestingly enough, it's not a new problem in the church. Every time some twit says to me, I want to go back to the early church, to the book of Acts, I say, you're out of your mind. They're some, they were meaner than we are. They were more sinful than we are. They didn't know as much as we know about grace, and they were constantly fighting. Are you crazy? You don't want to go back to the book of Acts. Case in point is our text for this morning. If you have your Bible, turn to the 15th chapter of the book of Acts, and that's the record of the early church. I I wish I had time to spend all of the sermon on this chapter. It is a great chapter. It's the first general assembly of the Christian church, and it took place in Jerusalem. At the end of that assembly, and this is what Luke, the writer of Acts, writes, and I'm going to start at the 36th verse. And after some days, Paul and Barnabas... Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to do the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement. In the original Greek, that means Third World War. There arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated. Can you believe this? They separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose silence and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. You believe that? Our heroes aren't even speaking. The people who are supposed to model before us godliness, the fruit of the Spirit, kindness and love and patience are making obscene gestures at each other. They can't even work together and one of them wrote most of the New Testament. How do you deal with that, sports fans? How are you going to fix that? What are you going to do? Now, I'm going to do something this morning you're not going to like. I'm going to point out the sins of your heroes. I didn't do it. God did it. He persists in the revelation of his truth, in Scripture, in telling us about the bozos who are our leaders. This whole thing was founded on a con game. Really was. One of our forefathers lied about his wife so she could get him into the bed of a very powerful man. You know about David. Jeremiah was a weenie, and Paul said that Peter was a hypocrite. And that's holy writ, so he was a hypocrite. And I could go, what's God doing? 
I'll tell you what God's doing. He knows our proclivity to worship at altars other than his own. And he wants to make sure that we don't do that. And he certainly does that with Paul at Barnabas. If I'd been writing Acts, I'd have left this out. I mean, we need to provide an example for young people, and this is certainly not a good example. I'd have left it out. I mean, I wouldn't want the world to see our dirty underwear. This book sells everywhere, and everybody knows. I just wouldn't tell people. I'd keep it quiet, because we need heroes. We need people who are walking it, who are faithful. Let me tell you something. When I've said that to God, he says, we need to tell the truth. Irving Kristol, who's the founder of neoconservatism and one of my heroes, Jewish guy, he said when talking about politics, there are two salient points. The first is there are other people, and the second is they don't agree with you. Well, I would say that if you're going to be in the church, there are two salient points. There are other people, that's the first one, and the second is they aren't going to agree with you. So we're going we're to look at what happened. We're going to analyze it, expound it, study it, underline it, and apply it to our lives, and I don't like it any more than you do, but it's truth and it's God's word. Let me tell you something. There was a time, and I can remember, when evangelicals and reformed people agreed on most things, on mores, on drinking, on women's issues, on dress, on politics. That's not true anymore. For years, I served on the board and the executive committee of Christianity Today, the premier evangelical magazine in the world, and we represented evangelicals, and we didn't know what they were then. Today, it's even worse. And listen to me, it's going to be worse. If you believe that Jesus holds certain political views, if you believe that he has strong views about women, if you believe that Jesus is a Republican or a Democrat, you're in for a surprise because we don't agree. And we're never going to agree, and it's going to be worse, and it will never get better because our culture has changed. Now, why is this important? I care about the church, but I care about our nation. We're in trouble. If you haven't seen that, there's something wrong with you. We're in serious trouble. It's not because of political leaders. It's because of us. And it's not because we aren't pure enough or good enough or committed enough. It's because, it's because we don't like each other. And we really don't. I didn't say that. Jesus did. He prayed that we might be one, that the world might believe. So how are we going to have a revival? And I pray for revival and awakening in America every moment of my life. Every more, not every moment. I ain't that spiritual. But every day of my life, I pray for that. How's it going to happen? It's not going to happen if you get gooder. It's not going to happen if you get more religious. It's going to happen. They will know that we're Christians. It's going to happen when we learn to love. That's Pentecostals, by the way. 
That's Roman Catholics, by the way. That's Arminians, by the way. That's people who look different than you are, by the way. That's dispensationalists, by the way. That's Calvinists, by the way. That's Baptists, by the way. Good heavens, they're like weeds. They grow everywhere and you can't get rid of them. It's Baptist and it's Methodist and we are one and we don't like each other. And that's because we can't agree. So let's take some time and look at this text and see what's going on. First thing you ought to see about the text is that there is a mother load of fear going on in this text. You know why they're afraid? That's because these two guys care. If they didn't care, they wouldn't fight. You see, the Apostle Paul cared about the mission of the church. And he said, it's going to be cold in a hot place before I let that weenie kid go along with us again. In the middle of the battle, he rolled up his sleeping bag and went home to mommy because he liked her cherry pie more than he liked Jesus. And he's not going with us on this mission tour. But Barnabas, he was more concerned about people than he was about programs. Besides, John Mark was his cousin. Besides, he saw some gifts there, and he wanted to see him grow and change. He believed in a second chance. Both of them cared, and both of them cared deeply. I care deeply, and I hate it. I loved it when I was a young pastor and didn't give a rip. I really did. I figured I was the teacher. I didn't have to be nice to people. I told them my ministry philosophy is, you leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. And I worked hard at that. And then God put the people on my heart, and it broke my heart. I mean, I, I can't tell you. And I didn't ask for it. It just happened. All of a sudden, I fell in love with the congregation where I was the pastor. I used to say from the pulpit, I am not your mother. And when I said that, the only reason I said it was to have some kind of boundaries so I wouldn't bleed to death. But I'll tell you, it made me mean when I cared. The only people who fight are people who care because they're afraid. And there's a mother load of fear going on in this text. It's fear that didn't come from God, but it's real fear from two guys who care. And if you care, enough to worry about the church, you're in a dangerous place. And so, when you look at this text, there is a mother load of fear, but there's a mother load of ego, too, in this text. If you go back to the 12th chapter of Acts, you'll find that a revival was taking place in Antioch. And the church of Jerusalem sent Barnabas over to oversee it and to report back about what was happening. It was amazing. People were coming to Christ. The cripples were throwing their crutches away. The blind were seeing. God was doing something really good in Antioch. And, and Barnabas said, I can't deal with this by myself. I need some help. And then he thought of Saul, later to be Paul. And he went down to Tarsus and said, Son, would you come and help me at Antioch? And so Paul came as his assistant. And then later, the church at Antioch wanted to start a mission program in their church. 
decided to send uh, Barnabas and his young assistant out to plant churches, and that's what they did. And when you read the beginning of it, it's always Barnabas and Paul, or Barnabas and his companions. And then Paul had an encounter with a magician. I wish I had time to tell you that story. That is a great story, but God's power came, and it was amazing. And thereafter, Luke refers to the mission team as Paul and Barnabas. And later, he calls it Paul and Paul's companions. And then in the 15th chapter of Acts, you have the world war breaking out. Now, if you think that what went on before it had nothing to do with the disagreement that took place in Jerusalem, you'll believe anything. You're out of your mind, and you don't understand people. Ego, we have 4,000 pastors on our mailing list. And I, I love pastors. I, I really do. I love our pastor best. But I love pastors. And, uh, and every once in a while, you'd be surprised how often they, they get this tingly feeling from the Holy Spirit. Now, call me and say, listen, my friend and I are going to be co-pastors. What do you think about that? And I always say, very kindly, you're a fruitcake. You're going to kill your people, you're going to kill each other, and you're going to end up hating each other. And they'll say, but we love Jesus. And I say, I know you do, but you, even if your ego is in control, you can't do co-pastors. I've never seen it work, and I'm an, as old as dirt, and I've watched it for, I've never, not even one time, seen it work. Shakespeare said if two people ride on a horse, somebody's got to ride up front. You can't run a church by committee, okay? And I've seen guys who started out loving each other and sharing everything, ending up hating each other. Just a, why is that? It's because of ego. You got it, and I got it. You got more than I do. I'm ordained. There's a mother load of fear, and there's a mother load of ego, but there's a mother load of control here also. We don't, we don't have a letter from Barnabas. In fact, we don't hear anything else about him after this, but he did enough. There's no letter from Barnabas to the churches, but there are a bunch of letters of Paul to the churches. And in 2 Corinthians, that's why I love Paul. He's so human. In 2 Corinthians, he said, I am talking like a madman. And then he goes on and keeps on saying it. Then he stops again and saying, this is crazy. It's not from the Lord. And he goes on and says it. I get that. I can't tell you the number of times up here. Something in me says, don't say that. Keep your mouth shut. And then I say it anyway. And that's how I get into it. Oh, I understand. I like Paul because he's so very human, but he's controlling. That whole story of the church in Corinth is a story of, the, of Paul trying to control what's going on in the church. And you see it in every place with him, and there's a mother load of control going on here too. Uh, do you... Do you know why we fight so much in our denomination? Because we believe so deeply. Bull, it's because of power. It's because of control. 
It's because of me getting my way. You're worse than they are, but I'm better than you because I'm ordained. <laughs> Here in this text, and by the way, welcome to the club. If you're a visitor to the church, do you think we were a bunch of good people? We're not. We proclaim to the world when we join this church that we're unqualified and needy and sinful, and we say it in all our literature in this church, so don't make a mistake. There's a mother load of fear. There's a mother load of ego. There's a mother load of control, and there's a mother load of unbelief. Paul was dead wrong. There's no way to spin that. He really, really messed it up. In Philemon, uh, Paul calls uh, John Mark my fellow servant in Christ. When he writes to Timothy, he says, you bring along Mark because he's very useful to me. And then, can you believe this? He calls John Mark my son. What's with that? And later, it was John Mark who wrote the gospel of Mark. Barnabas, you did a good thing. Barnabas, I'm proud of you. Barnabas, you gave a man a second chance and look what God did in his life and Paul, you're a turkey. And you're a turkey because of your unbelief because you really don't believe that God changes lives. You don't either. That's why you worry so much about your children. I have a confession to make. Everybody, three people that were asleep just woke up. <laughs> I don't trust Joe Bouch, the chairman of our pulpit committee. And I don't trust the people on the pulpit committee. And you know why? Because of unbelief. Because I don't think Pete can be replaced. And, I'd, and I'm the Apostle Paul about my unbelief. I believe that God is sovereign, but I can't sleep at night. I believe that I'm forgiven, but I still feel guilty. You call that practical atheism. And it's a problem of unbelief. And as long as unbelief is going on, I can't trust Shane Claiborne. And I can't trust Tony Campolo. And I can't trust Democrats. And I can't trust denominational people who disagree with me because I think God needs my help. Doing fine before I came along. He keeps reminding, and listen, I'm bad, but you're worse. I'm ordained. Okay, I moved the previous question, and then we're out of here. We're going to have the Lord's Supper. Then we're out of here. That means the Baptists will beat you to the restaurant. Uh, what do you do? I mean, how do you fix this? How, how can you disagree, not, not change your opinions or your convictions, and love people who belong to Christ? How do you pull that off? How can you walk with people like that? We wound our own, kill them off. How can we stop doing that? Let me tell you, and it's all over the New Testament. I have two answers. First, we can walk together and disagree and love each other if we're loved 
and we're forgiven. Now wait. And we know to the bone that we need it. If That's why your besetting sin is such a gift from God to you. That's why being messed up and knowing that you are is first, 2 Corinthians, Paul's power made perfect in weakness. Paul to Timothy said, it is a saying worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Got it. And then the statement, Paul said, I, not was, I am the chief of sinners. Are you the chief of sinners? If you're not, we can't get along. I don't like you to begin with, but if you don't get that and I don't get that, we can't even walk together. Paul in Romans 7 said, the good that I want to do, I don't do, and the evil that I don't want to do, that's, I, that's what I do. Oh, wretched man that I am. Is that your experience? Do you need forgiveness badly and deeply? Do you know that you don't deserve God's love and his forgiveness? Well, if you don't, we ain't going to make it. You get out of line, I'm going to kick your posterior. I get out of line, you're going to badmouth me everywhere. We can't walk together unless you know you're... You know who Brennan Manning is. I've quoted him for years, but I decided I'm not going to anymore. I mean, I get sin and stuff, but, you know, he keeps on doing bad stuff. He just got another divorce. And I decided, you know, he's a great writer and he says good things about grace, but I'm not, I'm not going to be using his material much anymore. But he came out with a new book and the publisher sent it to me <laughs> called All is Grace. Let, let me read to you a part of the introduction to that book. This book is by the one who thought he'd be further along by now, but he's not. It is by the inmate who promised the parole board he'd be good, but he wasn't. It is by the dim-eyed who showed the path to others, but kept losing his way. It's by the wet-brained who believed if a little wine was good for the stomach, then a whole lot was even better. It's by the liar, the tramp, the thief, otherwise known as the priest and the speaker and the author. It's by the disciple whose cheese slid off his crackers so many times he said to hell with cheese and crackers. It's by the young at heart but old of bone who is led these days in a way he would rather not go. I've changed my mind. I'm going to offer his books in my catalog, and I'm going to quote him because that's powerful stuff. And I can walk with him. Somebody sent me a cartoon this past week about Dennis the Menace, and he and his friend are leaving the Wilson's house, and both of them have a cookie in their hands. And Dennis's friend says to Dennis, man, we must have been nice to deserve these cookies. And Dennis said, we didn't get the cookies because we were nice. We got the cookies because Mrs. Wilson was nice. God is love. And he loves strange, broken, sinful, needy people. And if you're not one, 
become a Buddhist, okay? Go somewhere else if you're not one. That's how we walk together. And then there's one other way we walk together. We can walk together without losing our convictions and still love each other if we know that we are irrelevant and broken and we can't fix either one. Paul said it, I quote it. Take this hard part away from me. And God said, my power is made perfect in weakness. I may have given you this quote before. It's from Andre Nouwen. And it is extremely profound. This is what he says. I'm deeply convinced that the Christian leader of the future, that would be you, is called to be completely irrelevant and to stand in this world with nothing to offer but his or her own vulnerable self. The leaders of the future will be those who dare to claim their irrelevance in the contemporary world as a divine vocation. <laughs> if I think i got to fix it and God needs my help, I'm going to be in trouble. And there are a bunch of people I'm not going to get along with. But I look at Shane Claiborne, and I realize that God will fix it. And I'm not his mother, and I don't have to be anything because God was doing fine before I came along and he's going to be doing fine long after I'm dead. Uh, we buried Joseph this week. Had trouble getting through this in the early service. Hard time. Known Joseph since he was a very little boy. He died at eight. Leukemia. That's bad enough. His father died two years ago of Lou Gehrig's disease. If they were pagans, God maybe got them, but they were missionaries. And I told God, if you loved them, you wouldn't be doing this. And I'd sit by, I'd go visit Joseph in the hospital, and he'd be asleep, and I'd wake him up, and I'd say, wake up, Joseph, I'm going to pray for you. And he would wake up and look his eyes, and he'd look at me, and he would say, you think about that. <laughs> and then he would giggle. On the, on the night before he died, he was asleep, probably in a coma. He was at home. I bent over his bed, and I said, hey, Joseph, you think about that. And he grinned. Hard. And there were a lot of tears at the RTS chapel. The place was packed. <laughs> there, was, <laughs> there was a lot of laughter, too, because we knew where Joseph was. Didn't Jesus came. I don't think I've ever experienced God's presence anymore. He didn't come with answers, but he came with himself, and that was not good, but it was enough. A lot of unbelievers there. All his teachers were there. His nurses and the doctors from Arnold Palmer Hospital were there. One of the teachers brought up Joseph's entire class, the cutest kids you have ever seen. And they wept as they talked about Joseph. And uh, uh, Mervet and Omar, as I said, were missionaries. Uh, 
to the Arab community. And Mervet is still uh, working with an Arab church here. And so they had an Arab pastor. And he spoke for 10 or 15 minutes, and there was no translation. And only the Arabs spoke Aramaic. So we didn't have the foggiest idea of what he said. But he looked so much like Jesus, and there was so much love and compassion. I just loved him. Didn't understand a word that he said. And then, and then when the service, and then I did my thing. By the way, those people who weren't believers will never, ever be able to say again, nobody, nobody ever told me, because they were told clearly and lovingly uh, about Jesus. Well, anyway, after the service, uh, and... Uh, Mervette didn't tell me she was going to do this. I think she knew. I thought it would be silly and hokey, and they shouldn't do it. But they had helium-filled balloons for everybody, multicolored balloons. And, they, and everybody, everybody got a balloon, and we went out in front of the seminary, and, and, and we let it go. And uh, those balloons went into the sky. And uh, it was quite moving. Later on, uh, a friend of mine who speaks Arabic said, Hey, Steve, do you know that that pastor contradicted everything you said? <laughs> yeah. Said he did. He contradicted everything you said. And then I thought, you know, I don't care. And I love him. And if you listen to what I taught you this morning, you know why. You think about that. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this sermon, be sure to check out Steve's books, plus some exclusive and limited time offers at keylife.org store.